Thanks for downloading this History Hub podcast. History Hub is based at the University College Dublin School of History. For more information, go to historyhub.ie. In this episode, part three of a series of podcasts by Dr. Ariel Glynn of Leiden University and Doyle Fallon of University College Dublin. The series, Hidden Dublin, From the Monto to Little Jerusalem, is based on a UCD adult education lifelong learning course of the same name, which Donal and Ariel created. The course is open to all members of the public. Its next run begins on the 23rd of February 2016. For more details, including information on how to enrol, go to ucd.ie forward slash adult ed. This episode examines Dublin's multicultural history. Today we're going to be talking a bit about kind of multicultural Ireland historically, because most people associate Ireland's migration history with people leaving, which, you know, is understandable considering the incredible numbers. But Ireland has an infrequently referenced but quite rich immigration history. You know, even when you think about Dublin being founded, you know, Vikings. So Normans uh, coming in later on, and, and, then, and then you had, you know, obviously English and Scottish sailors, to name but a few. Um, but we're going to talk probably mostly about the 18th century until the early 20th century, focusing in particular the late 19th, early 20th century, but kind of going back to this quite dynamic time in Dublin in, uh, let's say, late 17th century, early, or throughout the 18th century Dublin, there, there was quite a sizable Huguenot mm. presence in Dublin. So even the, the title of our course, by including Little Jerusalem, uh, we're talking about migration, and it's one aspect of Dublin's hidden history people are very, very interested by it. I think they're surprised how far back it goes that you would have had noticeable migrant communities in Dublin as far back as the 17th century. Uh, the Huguenots are particularly interesting because we, we, we still see their influence on Irish history around us today. Uh, though we may not know we're often looking at it. You know, places like the Bank of Ireland owe their very existence to Huguenots. Uh, the Huguenots, what a great name, by the way, were members of the Protestant Reformed Church of France, uh, and they fled religious persecution in their native country in the 17th century. And you kind of see small numbers of these Huguenot refugees arriving in Dublin, mainly via England, from kind of 1620 up to 1641. Uh, they're here with Cromwell in 1649. Uh, and incredibly, you see Huguenots even at the Battle of the Boyne. You know, there's a sizable element, uh, sizable Huguenot presence fighting alongside King William of Orange, King Billy, at the Battle of the Boyne in 1690. And it was really in the aftermath of that kind of defining battle uh, where you see Huguenots settling in Dublin uh, in great numbers. You know, in the Liberties area of the, of the city in particular, they're renowned for their weaving abilities, skills that they took with them from their native France. Uh, and they become just a, a huge and accepted part of the fabric of life in that area in the late 17th and early 18th century. Uh, it's David Diggs-Latouche, for example, in 1745, a Huguenot. He finances the building of a weaver's hall in the Lower Coombe area. And even the names of Dublin today walk around the city uh, and you'll find great names. Delir Street, for example. Uh, named after Jeremiah Delir. He's a fascinating, uh, a fascinating figure. He was a founding director of the Bank of Ireland, governor of that institution from 1799 to 1801, a Dublin city sheriff. Beckett Bridge, you know, Samuel Beckett himself. Uh, Beckett's family tree comes from Huguenot Stock, walking to the Huguenot Cemetery, uh, not far from St. Stephen's Green and Merion Row, and there's relatives of Samuel Beckett's buried there today. Diggs Lane, where News Talk, Today FM and the like are found, and Marconi House. You know, the, it takes its name from the from the Latouche family as well. Uh, from Bally Lane, what a great name! My favourite, actually, of all the of all the Huguenot influence names in Dublin, not far from St Patrick's Cathedral, likely named after the from Bally family who lived there in the 1720s. So the Huguenots are, are a very early 
migrant community in Dublin. But they're important because they establish themselves, they really come to define a number of fields. Weaving, for one, banking is another. Uh, they're important in the in the economic history of the city. And the fact that they're Protestant, that they fight at the Battle of the Boyne, there's a political and a religious dimension to that early migration story too. Yeah, well, you know, when you're talking about the Huguenots there, I, I just remember reading that they, they perhaps occupied uh, represented five percent of the popul- of Dublin's population at one sense. Uh, at one stage, you know, there's a French school set up, a French boarding school set up in in Donnybrook, and there were actually huge links between Ireland, uh, especially Catholic Ireland and France, because that's where you would have gone for education uh, if you were kind of had wealth. Uh, and so French would have been spoken ar- mm. around, especially around the liberties, as you mentioned. But it's it's also happening elsewhere around the country. So Port Arlington, for example, you have a huge settlement there, and the I think the the services in the church were given in French until the you know late. Um, I think the middle of the 19th century but you know it, it is a much more diverse city than we think and you know you, you mentioned there the Battle of the Boyne and, and this got me thinking you know if you go into the the old parliament in College Green in the Bank of Ireland you see you know these huge tapestries tapestries yeah. but you also see a black African uh, drummer boys at the Battle of the Boyne and, I, and you know it got me thinking about uh, the different populations not just Huguenots so there was a very interesting article by, by W.H. Hart about Africans in 18th century Ireland. And he wrote that it is highly possible that there were between 2,000 and 3,000 black people living in Ireland oh, between 1750 and 1800 at one stage. You know, So, okay, it might be a small figure in relation to the population as a whole, but it, it is uh, as a large... No, it's a noticeable yeah, community. He talks about it as being as as large as the amount of people record, black people recorded in France, in the whole of France. Then he says, um, in Europe it's only exceeded by, by England and maybe in Spain and, and Portugal, which are much more involved in the, in the slave trade. But it's also, I suppose, one of the aspects of this course, about this hidden history, is that we also wanted to, to do something like Dublin history um, you know some of the unseemly aspects as well so you know Dublin is benefiting from the slave trade as well and you see it in the city with a lot of people having their servants um, and and many of them trying to escape again and again but I suppose you have you have details of of a more positive story involving Tony Small one one black figure who would be noticed around Dublin in the 18th century was Tony Small uh, or fateful Tony as he became known and he's kind of fascinating because he is Mingling at the very upper echelons of Irish society, you know, he's a escape, an escaped black American slave uh, who is befriended by Lord Edward Fitzgerald, uh, who, of course, is, is one of the most important figures in the history of the United Irishman, important figure in the 1798 rebellion, but who came from kind of quite hardline Unionist stock and who had fought in the American War of Independence against American independence as a, as a, as a British soldier, and he fell wounded on a battlefield in South Carolina and was saved by Tony Small. Uh, who he em, em, uh, employed in the aftermath of this as a personal servant in Dublin, well paid, well well cared for, well looked after, regarded as an equal. Uh, but the the idea of of faithful Tony, as he became known, uh, kind of walking around the streets of Dublin in, in the eighteenth century is quite remarkable. Kevin Whelan has said that it's the best documented Irish example of imaginative sympathy between a white and a black man. Uh, you know, is the relationship that developed. Uh, between the two. So that this one-time British soldier, a darling of the ascendancy, converts towards republicanism uh, through the influence of people like Thomas Paine, 
uh, Drew seeing revolution with his own eyes in the streets of Paris, uh, you know, that, that he befriends and employs this, this black American slave uh, is quite remarkable. But when I first came across this story a couple of years ago, I, I thought, my God, this must have been the only black man in the streets of Dublin. Evidently, he wasn't. You know, evidently, from, 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 from research, there were you know, hundreds of black people, potentially, in Dublin at that time, as a result of Dublin being uh, a thriving port as it was. Yeah, and, you know, I mentioned earlier about French probably been spoken in certain areas of the city, and there are also other pockets, like um, people were speaking Welsh on Talbot Street. You know, on, on in, there was a Welsh chapel on Talbot Street set up in, in the 1830s, I believe, uh, where what, what would happen is that, okay, there would have been a community of Welsh people, perhaps in, in university, in in Trinity College, there would have been sailors coming in because we have to remember Dublin is a port and there's people coming in from, from all over regularly and there's soldiers coming in. And um, But people actually went from North Wales to South Wales, sometimes via Dublin. So instead of going over the mountains, they would have gone from Hollyhead to Dublin and then and back over to the other side of Wales and they would have stopped and had their service in this Welsh chapel along with sailors and others. But that, I suppose, it highlights... It's probably overlooked again. The, the size of the uh, English-born population and the Welsh-born population and the Scottish-born population in the city and in the country. So I, I particularly like that story because the church is still there. Yeah, you know, it's an internet cafe today, but it's still architecturally. It's obvious what it was once upon a time, and it's a place that we can actually go and visit on the course. We can actually go and stand outside of it, or if they're in a good mood inside of it, yeah. and kind of highlight what it was. Uh, and it's funny too because it's not only an example of migration in Dublin. But there's Irish engagement with it. You know, Ernest Blythe, for example, who's a, a, an Irish language enthusiast, he talks about, you know, when I joined the Gaelic League and began to learn Irish, one of my fellow members told me that the Welsh community in Dublin had their own church where services were conducted in Welsh. I went there one Sunday morning to revel in the sound of a language closely related to Irish. So Irish people are, are mingling with this migrant community in Dublin at the time. Now, they're an unusual community, I suppose, in that they're not a migrant community in the way the Huguenots are, uh, in the 18th century, they're, they're not entirely settled. You know, many of them are seamen. They're they're coming in and out of Dublin, uh, but they're still a presence. They're 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 an outside presence in the city, and that's why they're worth looking at. Yeah, and just to maybe put some figures on the amount of, of foreign-born people living in Dublin. It, again, we kind of refer to these censuses, censuses that are are so prominent today in in, in discussions about. Irish history, 1901 and 1911 censuses. But you see, in Dublin there was almost 20,000 English-born people living there in 1911, 4,000 Scots, uh, over 1,100 born in India. So again, this this kind of tells us about... Colonial dimensions. Yeah, and, and Ireland's involvement in it. That it's not just this uh, one-sided colonial, uh, you know, that the Irish were oppressed. The Irish were partaking <laughs> in this, and, and, and a lot of people in Ireland had experience of abroad because they, they served in the British Army. This went down immediately after the famine, you know, from these huge peaks, but it's still they're making up yep. around one-eighth of the British Army in the, the, low, the early 20th century. But What's striking, I suppose, about the the 1911 census is the amount of of Jewish-born, sorry, Russian-born Jews living in the city. So you had um, around 3,000 Jews living in Dublin in 1911. And they're um, a bit like you think about what happened to the Irish in New York. They they congregate around certain areas. Mm. 
So a bit like the five points in the in the 1830s, 1840s in, in New York with the Irish and the Germans, you have a lot of the Jews um, te- going towards the, the little Jerusalem of Dublin, the, the, the kind of Portobello, South Circular Road area. But it's interesting that actually when they first arrived, you have examples of them living in uh, north side Dublin alongside some um, Italian workers, mm. you know, who are specializing in, in certain industries. So, again, this is reflective of, of Dublin being more multicultural oh, than yeah, you think. And that's a very important community, Jewish community. You know, it, it establishes, it's like the Ukrainians did in the 18th century. They establish themselves in a number of fields, you know, and they, they, um, they become the leaders of certain industries. And it's also a community that produces some remarkable people. Harry Kernoff, for example, is a product of that area that what becomes known as Little Jerusalem. Uh, and culturally, they adapt in many ways. You know, one interesting thing when you read that great book, Nick Harris's book, Dublin's Little Jerusalem, he talks about the way you know most of the local lads follow Chamacrovers, for example. So the Jewish community was was uh, it was an it was it. I always say about about Leopold Bloom, who Joyce takes and Ulysses. He's a He's an insider and he's an outsider. And that's kind of what they are, the Jewish community. They're, they're assimilated into Irish culture in many ways, but they're also unique in that they're living among themselves simultaneously. So they become a part of the fabric of Dublin life. They become a part of broader Dublin society, but they, they, they live in a quite closed, homogenous environment. Uh, James Connolly, famously, when he runs for election, when he, uh, James Connolly was never elected, by the way, he ran for election on many occasions and he was never elected like all the best men in history but when Connolly runs for election in the early 20th century his election literature is in English on one side and Yiddish on the other which kind of acknowledges the size of this community in that area and the fact that a lot of them would have been coming from kind of left wing backgrounds mm. in Tsarist uh, Russia you know around Lithuania those kind of areas you know because they were very much being oppressed by the Tsarist system and they were looking towards socialism and, and these other movements that were going on. You know, a lot, a lot of these pogroms that took place in late 19th century Russia were mm. as a result of Jews being implicated in assassination attempts and assassinations of... Yeah, of, of you take Harry Kernoff, he's drawing illustrations for Republican and Socialist newspapers in the 20s and the 30s. He's involved in the Friends of Soviet Russia. There's quite a number of Jewish people uh, that, you know, are involved in the revolutionary period uh, but saying that, even anti-Semitism, it comes from the most peculiar quarters. Jim Larkin's newspaper, The Irish Worker, you know, runs several anti-Semitic cartoons and pieces. So there's a suspicion of the Jews in, in working-class Dublin. Uh, and even that term, the Jew man, you know, the despicable term, it remains quite common mm. uh, in subsequent decades. So while they're, while they're a, a, a noticeable community, they're not always a community that are, that are, that are welcomed. Yeah, and... They're not the only outsiders who are being targeted at, at certain junctures in Dublin history. So, again, to, to maybe emphasise Dublin warts and all history, you know, at the outbreak of the First World War, there's a lot of people very much supportive of um, Ireland's involvement. Mm-hmm. And where did they go to? They go to, to, to demonstrate their hatred for Germany to the, the various German pork butchers littered around the city. So, you know, even you think of some of the um, the sausages that are still around today, the Hicks, mm. the Mogulis, the Hafners, the Hatchels, the Herterics. These, uh, these uh, Germans came from around the Stuttgart area in late 1890s, early 1900s. They, they would have come into England and Scotland. And it was around the time when people 
food becomes more industrial. So yeah. people are eating, um, you know, that there's mass-produced sausages and these things. And the Germans come in, see this kind of gap in the market, come over to, to Dublin, a bit like you, you have the opening of certain cafes, bistros by Italians as well at the time. But these Germans um, are targeted because... Yeah. You know they're they're the enemy in 1914, and you it's have a very ugly night in August 1914. I mean, some people I don't think it's a pogrom. It's a pogrom, uh, but it's definitely ugly, ugly scenes. Like there's uh, there's claims that in one case the the raid on a, a German pork butchers is led by recruitment sergeants. That's not entirely impossible. I mean that could well have been the case. Uh, you look at parts of Dublin, like take around Jacob's Biscuit Factory, for example, uh, and there's massive pro-war feeling there as rebels discover in 1916 because Jacob's, uh, like Guinness is willing to pay a percentage of your wage if you go off to war. So your wife is in receipt not only of a separation allowance, but a, a, a chunk of your wage from home. So there's this, this anti-German sentiment, of course, as a result of this. Uh, and you see it in Liverpool as well. You see anti-German riots. They're not confined to, to Dublin. But funnily enough, in the, the British press, they talk about how it's the Irish community in Liverpool that are to the forefront uh, of the anti-German riots there. And when we think in 1916 that the Germans are referred to in the proclamation as gallant allies in Europe, they certainly weren't viewed as gallant allies by those who were smashing up German pong butchers in 1914. Yeah, but, but even thinking about 1916, it wasn't only, you know, and, and to maybe emphasise this, the migration aspect, you know, there were a lot of um, foreigners involved, you know, we, 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 you know, a Finnish and Swedish sailor, there is um, an English Jew who was killed mm. in action. I think your blog, Come Here mm. to Me, have emphasised that. I, I, I've told that story. There, you know, there was Eamon Bulfin born and brought up until he was maybe 10 years of age in Argentina. Argentina. You obviously have De Valera, you know, this Irish connection. You have the whole Kimmage Brigade. They're fascinating, yeah. They're the, they're the, uh, the chickens coming home to roost, if you will. <laughs> you know, they're the, the children of Irish migrants who in many cases have been forced out of the country and they're here taking part in an insurrection. They're remarkable. Uh, they, they talk about how in the, with the rebellion is coming to an end, they're among the most hostile to the idea of surrender because they think they'll be done for treason. Mm, because you know, they're when they hear, Exactly. When, when they hear my Liverpool accent or my, my Manchester accent, I'm going to the gallows. Uh, and they're among the, the least eager to, to surrender at Moore Street when the decision is made. So migration appears even in the, in the, in this, in the nation-building chapter of Irish history. Mm. And I suppose to finish, we could finish by talking a bit more about that Welsh chapel that you mentioned um, on Talbot Street, how today it's an internet cafe run, uh, run by Chinese migrants. Yeah. You know, so, <laughs> so, so we're just, I suppose, trying to emphasise that this is not new, that no. this is, they're building on what came before them in, in this... Um, quite rich period of Irish history, rich multiculturally, a lot more so than people give credit for because they just think emigration and mm. Ireland. Mm. Whereas there, there's that hidden history there that's that's very interesting uh, and it, it involves Jews from Lithuania or Saras Russia, pork butchers from Stuttgart, cello makers from Italy and various English soldiers and, and English professionals and Scottish people coming in, the likes of Connolly, the return migrants, the likes of Larkin, you know, the second generation coming back to roost, as you, as you will. Ireland may be a tiny little island, but the world has always found its way here, I think, is the point of all of this. <laughs>